Hello, and welcome to episode 73 of the Waters Wavelength Podcast. My name is Anthony Malakian, the U.S. Editor of Waters. Um, this next bit of news has been a relatively long time in the making. As our regular listeners know, uh, Dandy Francesco left Waters to move uh, to our sister publication, Risk. So, you know, we felt it was only right to go and get someone from Risk. So we've added former Risk reporter James Rundle to our team here at Waters. Give a hello, James. Hey, guys. Long-time readers of Waters will remember that, James, this is in his first uh, stint with us. Uh, he was here a few years ago as a reporter and then eventually as a deputy editor. Um, we are going to, in a minute, talk about uh, Thursday's U.K. general election and what it could mean for the Brexit negotiations and looking at next step uh, for what it means for our readers, uh, what it could mean for U.K.'s fintech scene and um, talent uh, scene. Uh, But before we get to that, a quick reminder that voting for the Waters Rankings closes this Friday, uh, end of day, New York time. One last time, uh, these are only open to end users, so no vendors, no consultants, no PR firms are allowed to vote. But if you haven't already, it takes anywhere from three to five minutes to go through um, and just uh, pick your favorites. We want to hear from you, and we'll be announcing the winners uh, later on in July. Um, Also, after James and I are done, uh, chatting, keep on listening because I'm going to also talk with our uh, UK colleague, John Brazier, about his feature that went up yesterday looking at the Bloomberg Port and Barclays Point integration. It's really good stuff. And so we'll kind of look at what it means for the industry going forward and what some of the concerns still are. Um, but let's get into it. Uh, as you, like I said, as you might recall, James used to write for Waters uh, from 2011 to 2014 rising up to deputy editor at Sellside Technology. Uh, he will now be the news editor and take on the deputy editor of Buyside Technology as well. Um, he's written for Dow Jones, um, and uh, most recently he was with Risk. But, uh, James, why don't you give us a little bit of your background? Yeah, so as you said, uh, I'm old school Waters. Uh, I was the London-based deputy editor for Sellside Technology, which obviously John now fills. Um did that for about three and a half years, I think, and then, as you say, went to Dow Jones, where I worked for Financial News and the Wall Street Journal, uh, where I mainly covered uh, regulation, market structure, European politics, um, derivatives, markets, that kind of thing as well. Um, took a bit of a break from working life, which was quite nice for about six months uh, after that, moved out to the United States, um, got married, had a summer off, and then, uh, yeah, joined the team at risk here for about six months, where I... Mostly covered post-trade and clearing, uh, derivatives kind of based journalism. But yeah, I'm really glad to be back at Waters um, covering technology again. It's, it's going to be good. And it's a good time to have you on right now. So Thursday, big election, UK election. Um, as an American, I don't fully understand how the elections in the UK work. Um, but it's going to be a very important election because um, this next leader will help to decide how these Brexit negotiations are going to play out. Um, I haven't been following it that close, being that we're in America and we really only care about America. But um, I guess from we're going to kind of talk about that, the technology impacts and stuff like that, the stuff that is going to concern uh, concern our audience specifically. Um, But maybe to start off with, what was, you know, for our American um, listeners, what was the reasoning behind this election happening now um, what, what, what kind of led to it? Right, yeah, so uh, I guess taking it back a step uh, to last year, um, where we had a different government in charge. It was still a Conservative government, but David Cameron was the Prime Minister. 
he called the referendum um, to kind of settle this issue of European membership that had long been bubbling under the surface for decades, really, in the UK. Obviously, there's a shock vote. The UK voted to leave. Cameron resigned. Theresa May was then elected Prime Minister within the Conservative Party um, and took over. Uh, but it's always difficult, I think, taking over a government when you haven't had the mandate in the first place. So I think her idea behind this was to really... Once she triggered the Article 50 process, which means that we have to leave the European Union within two years, she wanted to shore up her vote and make sure she had enough support in Parliament to really push through kind of her negotiating platform and her stance and, and uh, you know, kind of really make sure that she could get the, well, I suppose, the deal that she wanted or not, as the case is. Mm-hmm. Um, what has happened since then, um, everyone expected her to run away with it, increase the majority by, you know, 20, 30, 40 seats, whatever. Um, the opposition leader, Jeremy Corbyn, has run a pretty good campaign. He's narrowed the lead to single-digit points. Um, and there's potential for an upset. I mean, it could be the case that uh, Labour does win it. It's probably unlikely, but um, I think it's a lot closer than she expected it to be right now. Well, let me ask you this. So to the the points about the election getting closer, um, you know, I think, God, I remember Dan and I talking about the um, the U.S. election with um, uh, Donald Trump against Hillary Clinton, and I said there's no chance. There is positively, truly no chance. Like, just look at the polls. There's no chance. Hillary Clinton is well in the lead. There's no way that she's going to lose this election. Obviously, one of the great predictions of our time. Um, I'll I'll blame 538 and Nate Silver, not myself, obviously. Um, but uh, so. Your take on this, um, do you do you believe that these polls, that it really is tightening up? And maybe what do you think are some of the reasons leading to this, um, uh, at least um, in the polling, um, getting closer? So the thing you have to understand about the UK and its relationship with Europe is that we never really took Europe very seriously. Um, so we take general elections very seriously and, um, you know, to a certain extent, other regional elections. But the European election is always seen as a way to protest vote. Um, if you didn't like the government, you punish them by voting their MPs out and, and all the rest of it. Um, with the referendum votes, um, there's been a lot of articles about how people afterwards have maybe reconsidered their decision to vote to leave the European Union. There was a lot of misinformation on both sides during the campaign. Um, so perhaps this is an example of people thinking, right, okay, well, we're actually doing this now. Um, maybe we shouldn't put someone in charge who will walk away from the table without being a vote. I mean, you know, some of the figures about what certain parts of England will lose in terms of European funding are coming out and people are a bit concerned. But also, um, I mean, without getting too deep into it, there's we have a very right-wing controlled press in the UK. A lot of the newspapers are very, very um, pro-conservative. Uh, and so Corbyn gets represented as such within that media now we've had the general election and they've gone through the lens of television instead i think maybe people are seeing a different side to him and also seeing a different side to theresa may so that's potentially why the uh, the campaign's narrowed as well and looking at potentially so uh, underneath all this obviously is the brexit um negotiations that are going to come up there's we've written a bunch here at waters um about some of the potential challenges that could face the the burgeoning fintech industry um in london london you know really kind of jumped out to the lead in the blockchain sector for example um there has now been reports in all different sorts of media you know saying that 
you know, and a lot of leaders, uh, technology leaders in uh, London saying that this is worrisome for the advancements that we've made in the fintech sector. Um, this these this Brexit uh, decision could greatly hinder that. Give me both cases on this. Okay. You know, what is what are the some of the concerns? Why are they concerned that Brexit could be bad? And are there areas where right now it's just way too early to tell and that there should what would be kind of the counter argument um, to, to that? The devil's advocate of saying, no, this will allow us to do X, Y, Z. And so in the long run, short term, maybe some 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 difficulties, but in the long run, we'll be better off. Sure. So um, at the heart of, of a lot of the concern, particularly in financial services and particularly in fintech um, about Brexit is the idea that the UK will lose access to the single market. Um, so the single market is a construct in Europe which allows the, the free movement of uh, goods, services and labour, meaning that you can be Polish but you can come and work in London, uh, you know, you can market your goods to anywhere within the EU 28 or 27 as it will be, um, and it operates without sort of tax tariffs and uh, protectionism around the borders as well. So for fintech firms, um, who are startups generally, uh, operate on threadbare budgets unless they're some of the really like, big unicorns. Um, their concern is that they will be locked out of that potential market of 27 other countries once the UK leaves, especially if it leaves that deal. Mm -hmm. And they have to negotiate um, uh, treaties with the other countries, which may put import tariffs on, export tariffs on, and also hinders their ability to hire talented people as well. Um, and that's a real concern. I mean, you've already had uh, some of the biggest UK fintech firms, TransferWise, for instance, which uh, is person-to-person -person foreign exchange payments, um, which I've used a few times. Great service. But... They're a, a UK kind of um, real champion, uh, sort of, you know, poster child for their scene. And they said that, um, you know, if they were setting up today, they wouldn't choose London, which is a bit embarrassing. So they said that at a treasury conference, which was meant to promote UK fintech. Um, <laughs> and they're already looking at European locations to move their headquarters away from London. Um, they're not the only ones as well. I mean, um, even within the, uh, the broader financial services landscape, you're already seeing people like City and JP Morgan leasing office space in Dublin, looking at areas like Paris and, and Frankfurt and everything else as well. And there is a real concern that, you know, London on its own without the EU and its kind of financial clout and the ability to move between these regions might not be the best place for it. It's expensive. It's small. It's, it has a lot of expertise. But if you're not connected and you can't move freely, then why would you base yourself there rather than in any one of these countries which might be able to offer cheaper sure. um, space uh, to do that? Um, and, yeah, it's been a big industry. I mean, the UK fintech uh, industry is worth $7 billion to the economy. It employs 60,000 people mostly in London, but also in places uh, further north as well. Um, there are counterpoints to this argument, um, which I imagine will be that London has always been a financial centre by virtue of its location. It sits between time zones, between the US and between Asia, and it's a natural bridging point. It has the um, infrastructure in terms of uh, you know, technology and everything else there, uh, education, expertise. It has competent regulators who have been very receptive towards fintech, the FCA, for instance, with its Project Innovate program, Bank of England, uh, the support from the UK Treasury as well, um, which has been very vocal about support for fintech. Uh, and also, there's just a level of uncertainty. You don't know what the final result will be. It might be the case that the UK can negotiate passporting rights across the European Union, or it might have some kind of single market light deal or what have you as well. Um, I mean... And also, if you look at London, a lot of the banks are there. 
and a lot of the banks will still be there after Brexit. I mean, a lot of them are talking about moving a lot of their staff to Ireland or to Luxembourg, Switzerland, France, whatever. But at the end of the day, if you're a fintech firm looking to market to capital markets firms, you're going to go where your customers are. Like Nobody likes being in the city of London. The rents are high. It's a happy area to be around. Canary Wharf is probably the most depressing place in the world. But <laughs> if your main contract is with JP Morgan at Credit Suisse, then you're going to the Docklands, son. You know? <laughs> so it's, uh, it depends what happens with the bigger banks, I think, and whether they go. You know, from a talent perspective, uh, something that we've kind of talked about a little bit is so that the whether or not you want to have a fintech space or just an established, you know, vendor or whatever it is, the drive for talent is always a tough conversation. We always have C-level executives going either on here on the podcast. Um, Neil Pilar of AQR recently kind of chatted with us about that. Um, Bill Murphy's uh, Blackstone chatted with us about that a bunch. Um, or even at our uh, events and our panels, you always hear about the, the talent uh, challenges. Um, one thing I thought was interesting after uh, Donald Trump, President Donald Trump in the U.S. here made the announcement that the U.S. would be leaving um, the Paris Agreement, um, climate uh, agreement, that you had the French President Macron, or I'm going to butcher his name, you know, French names. I'm just, yeah, you know, I'm terrible at them. Um, but hence, he's saying in English um, at the LSA saying, you know, if you're a scientist, if you are, you know, interested in this, come to us. You will find a welcome home here. Um, and that is something that has been talked about with Brexit, too, is this um, concern that, you know, even with the Paris, Paris Accord that you saw business leaders all huge, huge American companies, Silicon Valley companies saying this is not good for us to leave this. As a leader, we want to be at the table. It's very important. Um, this could have long-term effects on us uh, trying to attract talent and in other areas, uh, developing new um, technologies. Similarly, with Brexit, if you make that transfer of personnel more difficult, that's going to create openings potentially for others. How is, from the people you've spoken with, how overblown is that really? Um, is that something that is very easy to kind of start hammering on now, but really once they'll work out the passporting? Because that's one thing I've heard is, you know, people saying, listen, everybody's freaking out about the passporting. They're going to have that worked out by the end. Um, and so you can't, that can't be the main driver of this. But if you are a fintech company like that company you're talking about, that if you're going to start up, you know, you have to kind of start thinking. But I guess the other benefit to being in London is the English-speaking, you know, environment that you're in as opposed to if you go to Germany, okay, now you have to have, you know, granted everyone knows English there, but then it becomes a little bit of uh, you can have more communication, I guess, differences and difficulties potentially. Um, from a talent perspective, what are you kind of hearing? What do you think uh, – Firms in the fintech space should be keeping an ear out for after the so post the election, um, if it's conservative, if it's labor, what you think people should be keeping an ear out for as far as that talent acquisition is concerned? Yeah, it's an interesting point. Um, I, I think the talent thing is slightly overblown, and talent goes ultimately where the jobs are and where the money is. Um, and even speaking of some of the guys there, like I did a piece uh, when I was at Dow Jones on, on Switzerland's fintech scene, and um, loads of the guys I spoke to like had their headquarters in Zurich, but they subcontracted out the heavy lifting of the coding work to guys in Eastern Europe, you know. And uh, so they're already that arrangement kind of already exists. Like you have your sales staff and you have your head honchos and stuff in London, but then 
you know, cheaper work is done in Tel Aviv or, or what have you. It's, well, uh, you know, Europe, or Eastern Europe, definitely. Yeah. Or even in the Baltics, the yeah. Northern Europe. Uh, you know, Estonia has been a, a kind of first mover on a lot of this digital stuff as well. Um, in terms of what to look out for post the election, I guess in that regard, um, looking at things like government policy towards tax for small businesses, government support as well. I mean, I think in the UK at least, uh, Labour is building. Well, I said they will build a national investment bank to invest uh, to invest 250 billion into infrastructure, which will benefit obviously fintech firms as well. Um, the regulatory environment will probably be looser as well, I imagine, especially if there's an acrimonious deal with the European Union. Um, but you're right. I mean, there is an opportunity for um, Paris and, and people like this to come and say, OK, well, you know what? We don't have the uh, the critical mass that London does right now, but we have this environment where it is welcoming, we have access to it. We can mould our regulations around what you want to do and that kind of thing and get it in there. I mean, I still think ultimately that if you're going to move abroad uh, and you have a choice between Paris... London, Silicon Valley, and Frankfurt, where, frankly, the best thing about it is the fact that you can leave it. Um, you're probably going to choose London, or you're going to choose yeah. you know, Silicon Valley, because, again, that's just that's where the market is. Um, and I think, at the end of the day, talents will go where the jobs are, the jobs will go where the customers are, and the customers want to be in the environment that's best suited for them. So, that's, I mean, overblown, yeah, I think there's a lot of scaremongering about um, Brexit and about what it means to people, and, and it's been... A lot of it has been generated by people who weren't happy with the vote and, you know, want to threaten to do something about it and putting pressure on the government to do that, which is their right. So we also, I think that we have to talk about, you know, we had uh, a horrible attack um, this past week in London um, following the Manchester um, uh, bombing. Um, and here in the U.S., you, you saw, even if you voted for Donald Trump, and I do consider myself um, uh, I'm Republican leaving, even though I didn't vote for Trump. His reaction to those events was just disgraceful and embarrassing yeah. to our country, in my opinion. That you know, that England is you know, your closest ally, and you know how you can't figure out a way to take a high road on this just blew my mind. But. He comes out with another tweet storm about, you know, en enacting the travel ban, which, again, this is another area looking at talent. Um, many companies have said, Goldman Sachs coming out and saying, no, that is terrible, terrible idea. Um, granted, Trump going and putting out this tweet storm, calling it a, a straight-up travel ban, is not going to help his case in front of the Supreme Court. And also insulting the court system usually doesn't go over well with judges. He doesn't realize that it's not as politicized as he wants to believe it to be, especially at the Supreme Court. Um, hopefully, we will see. Uh, <laughs> um, this vote, I would imagine, um, I, I'm going to speak ignorantly here, I would imagine, but um, that Theresa May on the conservative, I, you know, I saw her speech afterwards. She took a very hard line saying that we've been too soft um, on these extremist groups or, you know, kind of that culture. I'm not 100% sure. I don't remember the exact wording, but she came out with a very strong statement indicating that going forward that there could be, it, should she get elected, that that could lead to a little bit more isolationism as opposed to Corbyn. I don't really know. What, what may be from a um, looking at uh, an immigration policy and allowing Muslims people uh, from uh, majority Muslim countries 
Um, is there a worry, is there a concern or that people should be keeping an eye out for following this um, based on public statements that have already been made? Within the UK? Yeah. Is, yeah. I mean, it's probably worth pointing out, first of all, that Theresa May was the Home Secretary for six years before she became Prime Minister, so I think she's had six years to sort this out and hasn't done it. Um, you know, so it's probably a bit late to be criticising it. But, no, I mean, the, the problem with the Brexit issue is it does have an immigration dimension to it. Um, and a lot of the, the votes to leave the European Union was fuelled by immigration-related concerns and the, the borders are too open and we're not letting too many people in, that kind of thing. It can go one of two ways. Either the UK does take a more isolationist stance and it does put like a hard cap on immigration each year, which will obviously affect fintech firms and their ability to recruit and hire, uh, and banks as well, um, and just general technology firms or, or anybody in the economy. Or it will actually provoke the opposite in some ways. I mean, the UK is a notoriously difficult country to get through. So my wife is American. Um, I'm obviously English. Uh, when we were trying to pick whether we were going to live in New York or we were going to live in London, we were looking at the kind of the requirements for each one. It was very, very difficult to get an American into London. And it's not easy to get a, a, a UK person into the United States. But it's, That's it's, not what I've seen in this It's not what you've seen in this office. <laughs> <laughs> you should see the Wall Street Journal office in London. <laughs> so, um, but uh, what might happen is, oh, and that's a direct result of the fact that we, do, we did used to have free movement of people under the EU. So, I mean, you could literally just decide if you were a Spanish um, citizen one morning that you wanted to move to London, then just get on the plane and come. And that's it. That's all you had to do. Um, what this might mean with a withdrawal from the EU is that non-EU immigration may be relaxed to a certain extent. So you might see more categories for people within STEM subjects coming in, for instance, or... Uh, people with academic brilliance or um, you know skills that these firms need, whether it's things like distributed ledger specialists or anything like that. So that's that's the potential positive side. The more likely aspect is that there will probably be no change. I would have thought there'll be a lot of talk around it. There might be some kind of vague numbers put on it that they won't hit. But yeah, I mean, but when it comes to the U.S., um, moves such as President Trump's are more damaging because he is actually trying to put this through, and you're already seeing. Um, stops at the border through, uh, you know, I can be careful what I say because I am an immigrant, but <laughs> in terms of uh, uh, immigration enforcement agents, uh, you know, taking a harder line on, on that kind of thing as well, and people actually being denied entry to the country. Um, in the EU, it's still theoretical, and in the UK particularly as well. So there's something to watch for sure. And, you know, to wrap it up here, would you like to make a prediction on who will be victorious come uh, Friday morning? Uh, well, I've been wrong in every single political prediction for the last year and a half, so I'm, my gut tells me Theresa May's going to win, so I'm looking forward to Jeremy Corbyn being <laughs> Prime Minister come Friday morning. <laughs> Very good. Well, so James, great to have you on board, um, and uh, we will have both my contact information, James' contact information, um, if anything that we talked about kind of piqued your interest. Um, James obviously also, you know, as the uh, buy side deputy editor, he's going to be interested in really making inroads into the technology uh, sector there. Um, so if you have any insights, uh, shoot him an email. Again, all that contact information will be on the Waters Technology uh, podcast post page. Um, so we'll be back next week um, with more uh, talk uh, between James and I, and we'll also be bringing on some – we have some uh, guests uh, that we're starting to line up now for the um, coming weeks ahead. But um, before uh, we get to that, uh, this next we're going to quickly chat with uh, my uh, 
colleague over in uh, Europe, John, about the Bloomberg Port and Barclays Point um, integration. All right, thanks. Thank you very much. Okay, now I'm joined by John. He's the deputy editor of Cellside Technology. Uh, he uh, just wrote a feature on the Bloomberg Point and Port uh, integration, or Barclay Point and Bloomberg uh, Port integration. Um, his feature is currently online, and we'll link to that at the bottom of the article. Um, John, you'll read the article. I guess one thing that I find odd. Um, about this whole worry on the fixed income side um, is that love them or hate them, the Bloomberg terminal, it's a truly a top-notch piece of machinery and the vendor's ability to seamlessly tie together different functionalities from execution to charting to communication, whatever else. Um, it's fairly unparalleled in the industry. I just, you know, whenever you talk to a trader, you hear. But obviously the terminal is very pricey, costing over 20K. So is this a pricing worry or is it a capabilities issue? Uh, maybe tell me about what some of the greatest concerns that you're hearing are. I think it's more on the price, um, sorry, the uh, capability side of things. I don't think there's too much of a pricing concern here. I think everyone in the market, or at least the people I've spoken to on this, uh, they all know Bloomberg. As you say, you know, this is an, an ubiquitous uh a piece of technology everyone uses it uh, it's so well known and yes it's pricey but for the for the functionality that people get i mean you're, you're paying for what you get at the end of the day and, and what bloomberg can offer is is pretty unparalleled from that perspective at least so i don't really see that this is perhaps so much a pricing issue the main concern especially again from the people that i spoke to here was definitely on the capability side of things um from those those that were or, or still are point uh, users, the, the original Barclays uh, point system. You know, a lot of people were happy with this. They had, it was quite an embedded piece of technology throughout the market in the fixed income side. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of people were concerned when Bloomberg came in and, and brought out the IP of the system uh, and said, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna integrate certain parts of point into, uh, sorry, uh, point into Barclays, uh, sorry, Bloomberg Port. I always get those two mixed up. Yeah, exactly. They don't make it easy. Um, but yeah, I think that the functionality concerns were the most pressing here. I mean, obviously, um, Bloomberg have bought this bought this IP as part of a bundle with the with the Barclays Brace, uh, the indexes, and it, it did seem to me that perhaps this is more well. The, the, the indexes, the indices, is what they really wanted here. This is this is their main focus and. The, the IP of, um, of, of points happened to come along for the ride. Mm -hmm. So they've gone, okay, we'll take that. Um, we'll take that off Barclays. We'll put it into our system, and then we'll, we'll go from there. So it's, it's, it's a concern, definitely. I think people are definitely concerned about the capabilities of what Bloomberg Port's going to be able to offer in terms of risk and portfolio um, uh, tool sets going forward. And I think this is where a lot of people are sort of going, okay, well, let's let's instead take a look at where we want to be a few years down the road rather than taking a short-term view of things. Okay. And one interesting thing that, you know, you kind of talk, touch on and, um, you know, it's something that you've been writing a, a lot about uh, over in Europe, but how does MIFID II play into an investment firm's decision to make this switch? I think that is, it's going to definitely be a very big consideration. I mean, as a, you know, it's, it's no secret that people are, 
focusing a lot of spending, internal resources on MIFID II and regulatory compliance going forward. Um, and that's not going to stop in January, obviously. This is going to be an ongoing consideration for firms, you know, 18, 24, 36 months down the line. This, is, this spending isn't going to stop on January uh, 2018. So this is a big factor. And one of the sources I spoke to in the feature mentioned this, that this was going to be a key consideration. So I think the, the knock-on effect of that and with, with the terms of selecting uh, a system to replace Barclays Point is that a lot of firms are going to take the path of least resistance here. They're going to say, okay, we're, we're using Bloomberg, Bloomberg already for uh, whatever you may have. They may have the terminals, they may get data feeds from them, they may use them for any, anything already. So it does seem to be the easy win for them. The most cost-effective win for them at the moment is to say, okay, we'll integrate into ports. Um, we'll see what we can do with it. We'll give our Bloomberg a chance um, and see how they're going to enhance the system going forward. Um, and then, basically, I think a lot of them will review that. Um, a few, maybe you know, 18, 24 months' time, they might say, okay, we, we've given this a chance. We might be happy with it. We might not be. But for the time being, it's definitely something that's going to be focused on Mifid too. You know, they don't want to have to go, okay, we'll have to take our focus away and go out, look to the market, find a vendor, establish a new relationship with them, get a new system integrated, go through that whole project. I don't think there's going to be a lot of buy-side firms in the fixed income market that are really going to want to have to do this right now. So we are going to see, I think, a lot of people taking Bloomberg Point purely, as I said, as the path of least resistance for the time being on the cost side. Okay. And as you touch on the story, you know, you have facts at adding Bysam and StatPro acquiring UBS Delta. Um, next up on the block, it sounds like uh, Citigroup could move uh, its fixed income analytics business, a yield book, uh, as you mentioned, to potentially right. to ICE, S&P, or MS MSCI. Well, that was actually sold last week. Uh, oh, was the it? Yeah. There you go. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, they, they waited until I filed the article to, to announce that one, thankfully. Um, but, yeah, they, they've made their play. The LSE have come in and announced that they're going to be uh, acquiring Yieldbook and some of the uh, city indices. Okay. So it's just I mean, it's, it's just a continuation of the trend. I mean, I, I, would, I would definitely assume that there's going to be a, some more M&A activity in this space. Um, I think there's definitely other vendors out there who are looking around, looking at similar systems um, and, and seeing what their options are. But, yeah, I mean, it's... It's, it's definitely something that's that's been a catalyst for these sorts of uh, ac uh, mergers, acquisition activity in this space, definitely. Um, and I think everyone that I've, I've spoken to on this issue has, you know, has the same opinion that this has really kicked off a bit of a bidding war for other firms. You know, as, as you mentioned, the fact that by Sam and, and StatPro buying out UBS Delta, which was a huge deal for them. Um, and for the industry, really. So I think, you know, and there was there was one thing that one of my one of the sources in the article article mentioned that it's uh, this sort of uh, the, the changes in the market, these the systems changing hands at the moment, changing ownerships, isn't isn't always positive for the asset managers because they may have had um, a good relationship with, say, UBS Delta in the past. They might have used that system for a long time, or you know, or, or Barclays um, Barclays Point, for instance. And now that system's gone somewhere else. It's under a new stewardship. It's under new ownership. So now they have to kind of get a, a feel for the new owners. They have to say, okay, well, how are you going to look, look after us going forward in terms of the functionality you can offer on these systems? Are you going to have our best interests at heart? Um, so it is going to cause some consternation, I think, that a lot of these uh, the, the systems are changing hands. The landscape has changed so quickly um, over the last uh, 12 to 18 months. And I think... Um, 
there is some concern about that. I don't think it's top of people's concerns by any means. I think, you know, as we mentioned, Mifid 2 coming in, I think is going to be top of that pile. I think a lot of firms are also worried about issues like cybersecurity as well. So I don't think it's their key key concern at the moment, but I think mm. it's definitely something that they're aware of. Okay. Um, and uh, John, you know, so I know you follow politics, everything like that. Uh, Jim and I were talking about UK uh, elections and what that could mean for um, the fintech industry and Brexit and everything like that. But do you have any predictions for us uh, coming up for uh, Thursday's uh, big event? Oh, I don't know. I have to be careful what I say here. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm not good at predictions. Um, there's, there's definitely an outcome that I would prefer and definitely an outcome that I would not prefer. <laughs> I, won't, uh, I won't put myself on record of which one that is. But um, I, I, I don't know, to be perfectly honest, Tony. I mean, you know, I don't think that any of the candidates have really got too much concern for the fintech industry. Uh, I think whichever, whichever party is in, is in power on Friday is going to have a hell of a job uh, negotiating Brexit and how that's going to play out in terms of the City of London, the banks, the, sure. the firms that stay here. Mm-hmm. Um, something I looked at in, in my recent opinion column. But, ah, oh dear, it's, it's, it's a bit of a mess, to be honest with you. I, I have no idea what's going to happen. And I think there's going to be probably a few firms out there, particularly, uh, I think, the smaller technology firms, I think, who are going to have some serious repercussions, whatever happens on Thursday. Maybe not immediately, but definitely further down the road, um, especially, as I said, with the outcome of Brexit. Okay. Well, John, uh, thanks for taking the time. And as I mentioned, your feature is linked um, online. It's definitely worth the read uh, to get a feel for how the industry is still uh, fretting about this uh, big integration that's coming up. But uh, thanks for your time today. Cheers, honey. Have a good day.